want to welcome everyone this morning. Uh, my name's Tony. I have the privilege and the pleasure of being on staff here at Wellspring. want to welcome you, say hello. I uh, hope you experience some of the presence of Jesus as we were singing that song. Also want to just take a moment as we begin just to recognize today is kind of a, a big deal in our culture as a nation. Today is Mother's Day. And I want to take a moment just to celebrate and recognize all the mothers in the room. Now, while I want to emphasize and certainly honor biological mothers, I also want to just take a moment just to honor all the different types of mothering and motherhood in the room here today as well. Right, I was raised by a biological mother, uh, but I also had a stepmother. I had a wonderfully kind grandmother who mothered me. And I know that there's lots of spiritual mothers in the room here right now that pray for me probably every single day. And I just want to recognize that mothering as well. All of these women have mothered me in beautiful ways, offering the best they had. And I want to honor all the mothers in the room today, no matter whether you're a biological mother or not, or a foster mom, or an auntie, or a grandma, or God has placed a child in your life that you are mothering. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 37, that God is like a mother hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. And I think many of you have been like a mother, lovingly protecting someone young. Maybe it's a son or a daughter or a niece or a nephew or just a young person that God has entrusted to you in some beautiful way throughout the week or this month or this year. And so today to honor you, I want to take a moment just to pray for all the moms in the room. But I also want to just say as you leave, we have some flowers for you. And so if you feel like God has given you the gift of being able to mother a young person in this season. I just want you to grab one of those flowers on the way out, just as a way of recognizing that God sees the beauty of your offering. Now, if you identify as a mother today, I just want you to receive this prayer as a way of God recognizing and seeing what you do and have done. God, I know right this moment you look down at the mothers. God, that you have entrusted with little people. And I know, Jesus, you are a God who loves children. And you have entrusted these little people to the moms in the room to protect as you want to protect. To love them as you want to love them. God, may they see their worth in your eyes for all the unrecognized little ways that they love and care on these little people. God, may they feel seen by you, loved by you, cherished by you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, if you are a little person and your mom is next to you, give your mom a high five. And then go hang out with uh, some of the other little kids. Miss Alicia is over here and Belinda's over there. They would love to hang out with you as we chat. Now, if you're an adult and you're stuck here with me, I want you to turn to someone next to you and I want you to talk about a favorite meal. 
So think back, like, do you have a favorite meal in your family? And if there's a, I think I, my mic just went off. No, it's still good? Sounds off to me. Anyway, there we go. So uh, if there's a third part of that tripod that's sitting next to you, loop them in. Favorite meal, talk to someone next to you. All right, if you haven't rotated, make sure to rotate. This is quick. But if you're really having fun, I'll give you a few more minutes or seconds. All right, has everyone been able to at least share a favorite meal? All right, I'm going to bring us back. Bring us back. All right, so shout out. Who has a favorite meal they want to just throw out there? Mac and cheese, done, with or without bacon? Thank you, yes. Sloppy Joe's, okay. Anyone else? Chipino, yes, like a true Italian. Eggs Benedict, okay. Now, I want you to remember, does anyone remember where they ate those meals and with whom? That's one of the things that's interesting about a meal, right, is it sort of grounds us actually not just in the food, but often the people we eat it with. Because meals like have memory, right? So I remember for me, it's this meal called chicken paprikash and dumplings. I remember eating it and cooking it with my grandparents and then, right, my parents and now my kids know the meal, right? It has this like generational effect. And I, when I think of the food, I not only think of the flavor of the food, but the people I ate it with and how it's connected to our family. See, God knows this, right? He created us with this ability to connect to food. So as we enter Exodus 12, and we look at the 10th plague, which is a lot of fun, and we look at all the action surrounded God rescuing his people from Egypt, what we're going to find is in the midst of all of this action, all of these moving parts, God dedicates 28 verses in chapter 12 to a meal. Pretty interesting. He dedicates almost an entire chapter to a meal that he wants his people to do so that they will remember him. Now let's go back. This is the 10th plague. This is how it unfolds. Like always with these plagues, God says to Moses, hey, declare this, and he does, right? This is chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, thus saith the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Now God tells Moses that while Pharaoh has not listened to the last nine plagues, at this point he will. 
when every firstborn in Egypt is going to die. Now, some of us, I think, read that. Maybe you're like me and you're like, dude, isn't that a bit harsh? You know, like firstborn, like really? Now, I want to give you a few reasons why I think maybe you should temper that opinion. First is this. They have literally gotten nine chances up to this point. This isn't like, you know, Pharaoh, you lied. Not firstborn. You know, nine chances. And we're dealing with slavery. This isn't like a small little thing. Like, this is people enslaved, brutally beaten. And God is like, hey, this has to end. Third, I think we need to realize that there is no indication in the text that the Passover provision, which we're going to read about in a minute, was just limited to the Israelites. Did you know this? In Exodus 12, 38, it says that a mixed multitude left with Israel. It wasn't just, you know, full-blooded Hebrews that left Egypt and went into the wilderness. The text says a mixed multitude, likely some Egyptians, came too. There's also this sense of balance in the narrative, right? In Exodus 1, Pharaoh kills the firstborn of the Hebrew boys, and then Israel cries out in Exodus 3. And in a moment, what we'll see is the Egyptians are going to cry out as their firstborn die, just like the Hebrew boys did at the beginning of Exodus. It's also worth noting the sun theme here. It isn't coincidental that the 10th and final plague focuses on firstborn. In Exodus 4.23, right, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says this. This is like his first communique to Pharaoh. He says, hey, God says, let my son Israel go so that he may worship me. So Pharaoh will lose a son and God will finally get his son Israel to be with him out of slavery. It's also not coincidental that immediately after the firstborn in Egypt die, the Israelites and the Israelites are finally free to do what God commands, right? That the Hebrews are commanded to dedicate their firstborn sons to God. And these firstborn actually become the priests as they enter the wilderness, God announces the plague in Exodus 11. And then, after the announcement, but before the enactment of it, God creates a way for the Hebrew people to remember this moment through a common meal. He literally says in Exodus 12, 14, that the meal is meant to be celebrated forever. So that, and God even says, as the text unfolds, like, hey, when your kids come up to you later on and they're like, with an eye roll and like a, uh, you know, why are we doing this? He actually gives them words to say so that they are connected to the story of God freeing his people from bondage. This is what it says, Exodus 12, 26 to 27. And when your children say to you, why do you mean why do you mean by, or what do you mean by this service? Why are we doing this meal? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Egypt, of Israel and Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our homes. 
Right? So there's this sense of he gives them a meal that they can celebrate through the generations so that the people of God can continue to live in the story of who God is. And he gives them specific things. He says, okay, get a male lamb without blemish. And they're told to slaughter it. And then they're supposed to take some of the blood and they're supposed to wipe it on the lintel of the doorway. And they're supposed to then take the lamb that's just been slaughtered and boil it and then eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And they're supposed to eat it, and I love this, you know, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Right? So if you're a fast eater, you're like genetically predisposed to rock the Passover. <laughs> There's a few things going on here. First, uh, the blood of an animal in Hebrew culture represents the animal's life. Right? So putting the blood on the doorway is a way to signal that a life has already been taken in this house. In this way, in the Exodus, in the Passover, the lamb operates as a substitute. Right? Even though the Hebrew people are slaves and the Egyptians are the oppressors, there's this assumption baked into Exodus 12 that no one is innocent. Right? The Hebrews need a substitute to die in their place just as the Egyptians do. All right, and this shouldn't surprise us given the narrative flow of Genesis and Exodus up to this point. Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, all of them resist God's will at some point in the narrative. All of them have failed to live fully into God's vision for human beings on earth. So the Hebrews take the blood and they put it on the doorway just to recognize, signal their recognition that they need a substitute to die for them during the 10th plague. And then they eat the lamb as well. So it's interesting, right? They put the blood on the doorway. They say, all right, we're going to put the blood here. And what that does is it signals to the angel passing over, all right, we are set apart. We're holy. And then they ingest that very lamb as a saying, it's not only our environment that has been made set apart or holy, but also ourselves. We take it into our bodies as a way to say that we are set apart and we are holy in this moment. Right? This is the thing, this is how sin works. Right? Anyone who has been in a work environment with a boss that is like hyper-controlling knows that their bosses, hyper-controlling, need to control everything, doesn't, isn't just like their boss's sin. It's not like it only affects the boss. It affects the entire staff team. It affects the organizational culture. Anyone ever experienced that? In a family, the same thing happens, right? If a parent has a lot of anger or resentment or bitterness, it's not like that parent's sin doesn't spill over into the whole family. Personal sin always has communal and environmental implications. Always. Right? This is true with leadership and power generally. Right? It is Pharaoh's sin that affects the entire nation. Personal sin affects the system of relationships. So the Hebrew people not only eat the lamb for their own personal sin, but they put it on the environment to signal, hey, our sin has affected everything. 
Second, they're told to eat bitter herbs to remember their bitter days in bondage. It's pretty interesting, right? The moment of their rescue, they're told, don't forget the pain of your past. They're also told to eat unleavened bread to remember God's quick deliverance. Right? They couldn't wait for their bread to prove. I feel kind of like a baker because now I can use the word prove because I've watched all these baking shows. Oh, they needed time to prove the bread. For you non-bakers out there, that means, <laughs> right, the yeast needed time to rise. They didn't have that, so they made unleavened bread because they couldn't wait for the bread to prove. Right, and all of this is done on the first Passover night. It was meant to be remembered throughout history. What's pretty fascinating, though, is that this moment, right, this meal, sandwiched between the declaration of the 10th plague and its execution, actually carries throughout the whole Bible and actually pops up in the New Testament with incredible import. You may recall, right, that Jesus' last meal takes place during Passover week. Now, I think most of us know that. Maybe it's even a Passover meal that he celebrates for his last supper, and Jesus takes unleavened bread on the table. He gives thanks for it, and he says, right, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, we read that, and if you've been in church, you've like said it or heard it a thousand times, but you probably don't get how radical this moment is. There are basically two pillars of the Old Testament and Jewish faith. You have creation, you have exodus. Jesus says in this moment, hey guys, this Passover, which you've been celebrating for a long, long time, which is a pillar of your faith, we're going to now make that about me. Wait, what? Unleavened bread. In the Passover, Jesus is saying, hey guys, as you go throughout history, if you go forward forever, when you remember this bread now, remember, don't just think about slavery in Egypt. Think about me. And he takes this cup, right, after supper, and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, one thing that we might not know is that throughout history, since the celebration of that first Passover, there were four cups of wine that were associated, that were drank symbolically during the Passover meal. The second cup had to do with the plagues, right? So they drink the cup of wine and they think, man, think of those plagues that God sort of instituted in order to set us free. Now, the third cup was the, called the cup of redemption. And most scholars think, actually, that Jesus takes this cup and uses it as the launching pad for his institution of the Lord's Supper, specifically as it relates to the wine. But he's not just offering a fresh take on Passover. Like, hey, let's take this idea of redemption and make it more relevant in the first century, you know? He's not doing that. He is fundamentally initiating a new covenant through his blood, right? Not the lamb's blood to remember the exodus. 
It's also possible that Jesus actually doesn't drink the fourth cup in the Passover meal, which was the cup of consummation. This is the cup that looks forward to when God will come and dwell with his people. Right? And this makes sense within Jesus' understanding of salvation history. Right? That one day God will come and he's going to return to earth and he's going to make all things new. And there's this idea baked into the prophets that when God does that, there's going to be a feast. And at that feast, there's going to be amazing food and delicious wine. And Jesus is going to drink the fourth cup in this eternal banquet in the kingdom of God. He's going to cheers us and say, there will be no more tears. I have made all things new. It's important, though, to remember that Jesus isn't simply like a choreographer saying, you know what, for this Last Supper... The Passover, man, that would be a good setting. He's not like thinking like a designer or a choreographer. Instead, I think what's really important is that the Passover we read about in Exodus 12 is actually foreshadowing the Lord's Supper. It's actually a precursor to the fulfillment and deliverance from slavery to sin that Jesus will release us from, right? The Exodus was all about releasing the Hebrew people from slavery to an oppressor. The same thing is happening through the Lord's Supper. But it's not Pharaoh, it's sin that Jesus is releasing us from, right? The Messianic covenant is the scriptural narrative that leads to Jesus and the new covenant. Passover culminates crescendos in the Last Supper. And then the Last Supper prefigures the final feast in the eternal kingdom. So every time we celebrate communion, we not only look back to what Jesus did, but we look forward to the feast in God's eternal kingdom when we drink the fourth cup and we are with Jesus forever. Right? Because Passover foreshadows the Lord's Supper, what we see is that there's all these narrative links between Exodus 12 and the Gospels. I'm just going to go through a number of them. Exodus 11 and 12. The firstborn sons of Egypt die. In the New Testament, Jesus is the firstborn son who dies. In Exodus 12, a lamb is slaughtered and eaten. In the New Testament, Jesus is the Passover lamb, and he says, right, that his flesh is bread that we can eat in order to receive life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Christ is our Passover lamb. In Exodus 12, the lamb is supposed to have no defects. Right? In the New Testament, Jesus is without sin. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.19, Jesus is the lamb without blemish, or defect. In Exodus 12, the lamb cannot have any bones broken. The Gospels tell us that Jesus' bones are not broken on the cross in John 19. In Exodus 12, the lamb becomes the substitute for the Hebrew people, right? They're not perfect. They need a substitute to stand in their place. And in Jesus, right, the lamb of God, right, he dies in our place as a substitute. His blood is spilled to make us holy or set 
apart. Right? Just as Pharaoh enslaved the Hebrew people, so we right, recognize and read in the New Testament, we've been enslaved to sin. It's not coincidental that Paul in Romans 6 frames sin as slavery. Right? And he's picking up on this narrative echo to the Exodus. Right? That it is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus that the bonds of our sin slavery are broken. In Exodus 12, God initiates a meal that then Jesus, right, culminates in Jesus offering us a meal to remember. The question is then, how do we take this story in Exodus 12, which then picks up in the New Testament and apply it in our everyday life? Well, when I look back on the Passover meal and I look at the Lord's Supper, what they seem to both focus on is this idea of remembering, hence not forgetting. The Passover focuses on remembering that the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt and how God rescued them from slavery. The Lord's Supper helps us to remember that Jesus gave himself to set us free from the bonds and slavery to sin. Both of these meals help us to remember who God is, who we are, and the story that we live in. And yet what's interesting, when you actually dive into the Bible, the story of salvation history, what you find is the people of Israel often forget whose they are and which story they're living in. In effect, as you watch the Old Testament unfold, what you're going to see is that Israel becomes Egypt. Solomon takes over the throne, and he essentially does exactly what Pharaoh did. He uses forced labor to build palaces. And then by the time you get to King Josiah, which is about 300 years after uh, Solomon, the people have totally forgotten that the Passover celebration even existed. And when we look at church history, it doesn't take long to see a similar pattern. While the church is called to remember Jesus and his sacrifice, right, through the practice of communion, the Lord's Supper often becomes a means of division and not devotion. Various views about the Lord's Supper surface throughout history, right? The Catholic view in transubstantiation. You have the Lutheran view in consubstantiation. You have Luther, or you have Zwingli's memorialism. You have Calvin's reform view. Now, we're not going to unpack all those today. But the point is, the church, just like Israel, forgets. But the point of the meal is to lead us to deeper devotion to Jesus. Instead, it leads us into patterns of division. I guess this morning, I wonder, what are you forgetting that you need to remember? What story are you living in today? Are you living in the story of Jesus sacrificing himself to set you free or some other narrative? One of the things that happened over the last year uh, is everything went crazy. And um, right, there's been so much transition, so many moving pieces. And as we're restarting, you know, trying to figure out how to do church going forward, 
I realized that like I have been really overwhelmed the last couple weeks. Like so overwhelmed that it's like affecting me. And I was trying to think like, why am I so overwhelmed? And I realized I'm kind of living into this narrative of control. This sort of like misguided assumption that I can control, like as a pastor, all the different things that we're trying to launch and redo. And it's like, that's exhausting. It was on Friday, I was taking a walk. Sort of my Sabbath, and often I go into the woods. And as I was on this walk, I was sort of bringing this into the presence of Jesus. And he said to me, you know, take and eat which is obviously what he says, right, in the Lord's Supper. And it was this moment, something clicked of like, oh, being an apprentice of Jesus, being a pastor in his church. Participation is all about Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' hospitality. It's not actually about my ability. It's not about my ability to control What I realized in this moment is I've been living into a story that fundamentally was opposed to the story of the scriptures. Fundamentally opposed to the invitation that Jesus makes at communion. And as we read in the gospels, right, that none of our belonging in this place depends on our ability or our righteousness or our goodness or our competence, but simply upon the gracious hospitality of God. If you were to look back on the first few we- last few weeks, and you did a little bit of like a looking on your own emotional reality, I wonder what you would see. Because our emotions, I think, become windows into the story we're believing in. I felt overwhelmed because I was living into a story where I could control everything. I think some of us live into stories where we feel worthless because we feel like our worth is ultimately about our ability to prove ourselves in a merciless world. And Jesus is sitting at the table. Take and eat. You're welcome here. What are the stories that we believe in? What story are we living in? What are you forgetting today that God wants you to remember? Because my guess is, if you and I are anything like Israel and anything like the church throughout history, we are prone to forget. And that's why God institutes practices like the Lord's Supper to remind us who God is, who we are, and the story we're meant to live into. Now, I was trying to think of like, so what can we do? Like, what does it look like then to remember? How do we do it? Well, two things. One, Jesus gave us a meal, literally, to remember. And I guess I just wonder, like, I think sometimes we think, Oh, I celebrate communion on Sunday morning when the church decides to do it. But the truth is, Passover and the Lord's Supper were celebrated in homes 
way before they were celebrated on Sunday morning at large congregational churches. I just wonder if we're leveraging that. Are we leveraging in our homes, in our families, with our friends, and in our own personal devotion, this practice that Jesus has given us to remember? When's the last time you celebrated communion with your family? Not because a pastor or a church said you should do this today. Because you wanted to remember who Jesus was. One of the ways we remember is adopting the practice that Jesus gave us, which was a meal. The second thing that I think is central to remembering is actually reading the Scriptures. There's a few reasons here. For instance, King Josiah ends up celebrating the Passover. Why? Because he found the Scriptures. So he read through the Scriptures. He realized, oh, this is how we remember God. And so then he celebrated the Passover. But it was actually the reading of the Scriptures that led him to remember the practice. My guess is, I'm, there's no historical reconstruction, my guess is something like this happened. They, started, they just kept doing the practice, right, throughout those 300 years between Solomon and Josiah. They were doing the practice. It was great. But then at some point, they stopped reading the Scriptures, and then they kept doing the practice, and then at some point, they woke up, and they're like, why are we doing this? What does this even mean? Why are we eating bitter herbs? These don't taste very good. Can't we just wait for the, the bread to rise and have leavened bread? And eventually they stopped doing the practice. And it was the reading of the scripture that gave them the why for why they did the practice. So these things actually work together. The liturgy and the scripture and the story go together. And I guess I just wonder, right? We are entering in a season of probably the greatest biblical illiteracy in the West over the last 2,000 years. I think we are in danger of losing the why of why we do all the things we do. One of the best ways to remember is to be in the scriptures. Are you doing that? If you want to be a person who remembers, I think it really does start with returning to the gospels, returning to the texts that give meaning to the practices, particularly things like communion. My hope is that we can be a people that remember. Right? We live in an age of deconstruction where basically we look at the past and we sort of, you know, pull it apart. We live in an age where we like to just sort of focus on the future and the present and we sort of ignore the practices of the past. But if you look back over the last 2,000 years, all healthy communities have been saturated in the scriptures and continued to remember Jesus through certain key practices like communion. Now, as we enter worship, I want to invite the worship team back up. I want us to actually just, when you came in, hopefully you uh, were given a little communion thing. If you weren't, I'm sure we can get one to you. Maybe someone on the welcome team can just grab it. If you didn't, just raise your hand and someone will get you one.
And this is a time when we can remember the practice in the presence of God. And if you're at home, grab whatever juice or bread you have. Feel free. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. It was on the table. And he looked at the people sitting like you are today. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. Should be broken for you. It didn't depend on your ability. It didn't depend on your sense of worth or accomplishment, but on the sacrifice and hospitality of Jesus who gave himself for you. And as you feel able and willing to accept that reality. I invite you to take that bread into your physical body as a sign that it is by Jesus' death on the cross, his self-giving love, that you are made holy by nothing you do, by nothing you say, not how good of a parent or worker or Christian or spouse you are. Jesus, the Lamb of God, died so that you could experience life and freedom. Then he took some wine that was on the table Remembering the third cup of the Passover meal, the cup of redemption. That just as God rescued his people from slavery to Pharaoh, Jesus rescues us from slavery to sin. That we do not have to, we do not have to live under a ruthless master. we can live under the kind and gracious kingdom of God. I invite you to take the grape juice, which is a symbol of Jesus' blood, into your physical body. That as his blood enters your bloodstream, you are made holy. Jesus, today we remember you. God, may we remember your goodness. May we remember that this is the story that we live in. 
God, we pray that you would break the power of shame. God, you would break the slavery to the lies that torture and enfold and bond us. God, that we could be a people that are washed in your grace, people that are set free by your promise. God, we cry hallelujah. Praise be to Yahweh, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who sets his people free. God, today we remember. God, today we remember.